sermon passage from to- for today comes from Hebrews 12, 18 to 29. For you have not come to what may have be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are all enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him with who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So now, our Father and our God, we come into your presence as your children We come in the name of Jesus, knowing that when we come in his name, you accept us because of him, you hear us because of him, you love us because of him, you will answer our prayers because of him, and because you're eager to pour out your blessing upon your people. So Lord, we come, and in coming to you, we cry out for you to welcome us, to receive us, to speak to us, to nurture us, to care for us, to bless us, to watch over us, to meet us in our weakness and in our sin and in our brokenness and in our hurting and to minister your love to us. We ask you, Father, would you do this? We ask you to take our wayward hearts and turn them home to you. We ask you to heal our illnesses and our diseases. We ask you to cause us to walk in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. We ask you to bless this church, to keep it pure, or to make it pure, to cause Redeemer Church, to be wholly devoted to you and to your glory and to your word and to your worship and to living for your kingdom. Lord, don't let us settle for anything less. Lord, we ask that as we look at this passage from the book of Hebrews, that you would speak to us. Not a man behind a podium, but you, through your word, would speak to your people. That you would draw men and women and boys and girls to yourself. That this would be the day of salvation for someone in the hearing of your word. 
and that this would be a day of conviction and a restoration for someone in the healing of your word, and that this would be a day of vision and direction for all of your people. Lord, would you do this, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you haven't already, please take your Bibles and turn them to the book of Hebrews. If you're visiting with us today, thanks so much for being here. Um, At Redeemer, our primary mode of preaching is to work through books of the Bible. And so um, the passage that Katie just read for us picks up where where we are in our study. We've been in the book of Hebrews for several months and, and possibly are scheduled to finish before Thanksgiving stress on possibly for those of you who know me. That's who was laughing. Um, but this passage, I'm just going to be honest. I hope it's okay that I be honest. This passage is a tough one. And it's been a struggle this week for me to, to wrestle down how exactly does this passage fit into the argument that's being made in Hebrews 12. And so let's... let's re-walk through some of our steps, um, re-walk our path a bit, and, and then I want to put this passage where, where it fits. So the book of Hebrews is written to Christians. It's written to those who by faith in Christ have been forgiven, accepted, and welcomed into the kingdom of God, the family of God, the church of God. And the author of Hebrews is, is attempting to equip these Christians to walk faithfully in a difficult world. So Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so, this passage is written to equip Christians to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and run with endurance. It calls it the race, but life for the glory of God. Of Jesus. And so the contribution to that argument that these 12 verses give to us are this. We run the race with the posture of worshiping citizens. We run the race with the posture of worshiping citizens. And so this passage is intended to shape our posture for life in Christ. To maybe put some churchy vernacular around it, this passage is intended to shape our mindset about our discipleship. Our mindset, our posture, our identity, our status is we are worshiping citizens for the cause of Jesus Above every other cause. So if you're here today and you're a Christian, just write these words down. Worshipping citizen. God is inviting slash 
calling slash telling you that your life walk with Jesus is one that your posture, your makeup, is, is one of a worshiping citizen of God's kingdom or a worshiping member of God's family. So that's the truth. And I think we get this argument most clearly in verses 28 and 29. And so I'm going to argue today that verses 18 through 27 put, put meat on the bones of the argument in verses 28 and 29, which means that this is the main argument. Therefore, let us, so this is a command, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So you might say it this way. The truth that shapes our living for Jesus, the truth that shapes our discipleship is that our God is, has always been, currently is, and always will be a consuming fire who is unchanging. And as those who know this God in Christ, we are citizens of His kingdom. Meaning we primarily belong to Jesus and the kingdom that Jesus is building above all other allegiances and all other kingdoms. And because of that, our lives are shaped as worship. That is adoration and deference and praise and act singing of the glory of God done with reverence and awe. So to boil those two verses down, because of who God is, we live as worshiping citizens of His kingdom. And our discipleship and our faithfulness and our joy and our fruitfulness is rooted in how much we walk as worshiping citizens. So Christian, it would be the will of God that you learn to live as a worshiping citizen of His kingdom. Now, if you're here today, maybe you're exploring Christianity, maybe you're exploring this church, maybe you don't want to be here, but someone made you be here, welcome, we're glad you're here. The invitation here is to a God who loves his children in such a way that he brings them into a better kingdom for better joy, for better purpose that lasts forever. The invitation is to enter the kingdom of God through his son Jesus, but understanding that God's kingdom is a better kingdom. So that comes back to us, church. I really think the burden of this passage is on us to display that living as worshiping citizens is a good, blessed thing. Not a wretched, suffering, boring thing. We're invited to live as worshiping citizens of the kingdom of God. So, let's ask ourselves this question. Is this what this passage says? 
First point, a consuming fire. Verse 29 says this, For our God is a consuming fire. This is a reference to the unchanging, enduring, lasting holiness of God. It's a reference to the enduring, lasting, unchanging righteousness of God. A reference to the enduring, lasting, unchanging character of God. Our God is a consuming fire. Now those of you who are students of the Scripture will pick up in this a reference to the Old Testament passage in Exodus chapter 3. We read in that passage of God coming to His servant Moses, who at the time didn't know he was God's servant, and speaking to him from a burning bush. But the bush burned and was not consumed. And out of the bush, God reveals Himself to Moses and calls him to serve him and and to serve his purposes and to build his kingdom. And I think this is really important Because this God of the burning bush is also the God that we're going to see later would reveal Himself to the people of Israel through a pillar of fire that they would follow. The presence of God was manifested to the people through a pillar of fire. And the pillar of fire represented His holiness and His unchanging character and His righteousness and and His During nature. And then this same consuming fire God would finally and fully reveal himself to his people in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God who became flesh. And so this God in the bush This God in the pillar of fire and this God revealed in the Son is the same God who is holy and just and righteous and merciful and unchanging and endures forever. There is one God. Now, what this passage is going to show us is that in Christ we get the freedom and the gift of approaching God differently than those Israelites in the Exodus story and in the desert wandering. But the God we approach in Christ is still the same God. And so to make this argument, the author of Hebrews is going to give this this parallel. He's going to talk about two mountains. One, verse 18 For you've not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with So the first picture is of a mountain 
in the presence and the holiness of God revealed in such a way that sinful humans were scared and humbled and overwhelmed. We might call this Mount Sinai. For in the Exodus story, this event happened at Mount Sinai. Read all about them in the book of Exodus, but if you only want to read a particular chapter, Exodus chapter 19. And so this says that the holy God, the father of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the father of the people of Israel, led his people, redeemed his people, delivered his people, but the people themselves were sinful and were left to grapple with with how they might relate to his holiness. So much so, we're told, that if even a beast touched the mountain where the fire was, it would be stoned. Throughout the Scripture, sinful people coming into the presence of God and His holiness and His consuming nature never, ever goes well for the people. Sinful people coming into the presence of the holiness of God on their own always are consumed. But, verse 22, sometimes these conjunctions in Scripture are our joy, but you have come not to Mount Sinai, but to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering to the assembly of the firstborn who were enrolled in heaven, and to God Himself, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So this mountain, Mount Zion, what makes it different? God's there. God's people are there. God's still holy and God's still righteous and God's still just. But what's different is the sprinkled blood of Jesus is there to cover the sins of humanity. The sprinkled blood of Jesus is there to make the entrance into the presence of God not one of fear and trembling, but one of joy and exaltation because we have been counted among those who were worthy of the presence of the Lamb. Because we're worthy? No, but because Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. This passage says that the great news is we don't have to approach the holy consuming fire on our own. We get to approach Him in Christ. We don't have to approach Him through Sinai, but we get the privilege of approaching Him through Zion. The only difference in the two mountains is the Savior who has entered in to take away the sin of the people and bring about their joyous welcome acceptance into the presence of God. So our holy God who is unchanging welcomes all who come to Him through the blood of His Son, Jesus, into the presence of His holiness 
but with worship and with righteousness and with acceptance and with joy. So let's just pause there for a minute, okay? And I know we're probably not going to finish this passage and it doesn't really matter. Just make everybody come back next week. I understand that the language of this passage feels like old school fire and brimstone a little bit. That's in the Bible. So it's not bad. And what this passage says is that our God is, has been, is today, and always will be a consuming fire. Unchanging. And we can either come to him, metaphorically speaking, through Sinai, or through Zion. We can come to him on our own, and his holiness will be a fearful reality. Or we can come to him in Christ, and his holiness will be a joyful truth that welcomes us because we've been made holy by Jesus. So if, as I said earlier, if you're here today kind of exploring the faith, this is where you need to camp out. Verses 22, 23, 24. 25. And just know this, that we believe God loves us, welcomes us, accepts us, forgives us, and uses us because of the blood of Jesus, not because of us. And he would invite you to him in the same way. My prayer for you today is that you would meet Jesus in this way. Now, to those of us who would claim the name of Jesus, we would claim to belong to the kingdom of God and the family of God and the church of God. Know this, our standing before God is never about us. And for some reason, deep in the recesses of our soul, we want to make it about us. So if you're in Christ, the fact that you read the Bible more this week then all the men in your community group doesn't affect God's love for you one bit. And if you're the dude who doesn't want to go to community group because you didn't open the Bible, that doesn't affect God's love for you one bit either. If you're in Christ, the fact that you fought in the car with your spouse all the way here doesn't affect God's love for you or acceptance of your worship before Him right now. And if you're in Christ, the fact that your wife sung your praises all the way here today does not affect your standing in the kingdom. You're only standing because of the blood of Jesus. We're so prone to want to perform, but this passage elevates the blood of Jesus above all else. Now, Christian, remember, and this is how it all fits back into Hebrews. Remember, the God of Zion is the God of Sinai. Remember, the God who sent His Son to shed His blood to die for your sin is the God who stood on the mountain and said, Be holy because I am holy. And is the God who gave the Ten Commandments. And is the God who said, I have brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now live for my glory. Christians, because we're forgiven by grace, doesn't mean we can trifle with God. He is just as holy today as he always has been. 
He has just as high of an expectation of his people as he always has. He just has sent his son to give us the power to be different, to be holy, to be like him. That's so, in verse 25, he says to the children of Jesus, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. You hear what's being said there? Christians, as worshiping citizens of the kingdom, heed and hear the word of God. Heed and hear the voice of God. Because our Consuming fire God is unchanging. And His call to holy living amongst His people is unchanging. Remember verse 14, it's in Hebrews. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So our profession of faith is, yes, Jesus saved me and Jesus made me new and Jesus is changing me. And as a worshiping citizen, a child of the consuming fire God, beloved by Him, we are called to hear and heed His word in all places and all situations. So what the author of Hebrews does with this idea of the consuming fire is he holds up Sinai and he holds up Zion and he says, children of this one God, don't refuse Him who is speaking. But hear him and heed him and follow him. Now, by way of application, looking out over this room, I don't perceive a lot of you who are putting your fingers in the, your ears and saying, la, 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 I don't care what God says, la, la. Like, I, I don't perceive that disposition of heart. So if you have that disposition of heart, Based upon the authority of the author of Hebrews and the Spirit of God in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25, I would call you to repent. Because Jesus loves you that much. But I think a bigger fear for us in the evangelical Bible Belt is not so much putting our fingers in our ears and saying, I don't care what God says. It's taking the voices of our favorite authors and our favorite preachers and elevating them to the level of God such that God's word gets diluted. And we can't tell what God's saying. That's a bigger fear that I have. So I don't care who your favorite author is. If he's one of my favorite authors, we'll have dinner and celebrate it. If he's not, you'll have to have your own dinner. But that author must not be elevated to the level of the God who speaks to his people or else we're in danger of missing God's voice. And it doesn't matter who your favorite preacher is. Even if it's not me, just don't tell me, okay? That was funnier in the first service. But if that preacher is not delivering unto you the word of God, then it has no authority. 
Don't let it be elevated to that place of authority. And the way this verse came crashing down on me yesterday was like a huge yellow flag. Be careful, Jamie. Be careful that as one who stands up week by week to speak to the people of God, that you don't replace the Word of God with your thoughts and your ideas and your experiences and your hopes and your dreams because this isn't your kingdom. So I'm not shooting arrows at other churches. I'm shooting them all right here. Let us be careful. Let's make sure that the Word of God, that's how God primarily speaks today, is through His Word, applied by His Spirit. Let's make sure that the Word of God is so celebrated in our lives and our families and our small groups and our churches that we don't miss the voice of God. And let's quiet and silence these other voices that might distract us from the Word of God. Now listen, guys. Listen, I read as many secular books as I do Christian books. I listen to far more secular music than I do Christian music. And that might be a good thing. I love a good TED Talk. And I love a good podcast, you know, on my two-minute commute from here to my house. I'm not saying all those things got to go away. I'm just saying that they better know their role in your heart. They're not ultimate. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. It's a warning to us because our God is a consuming fire. Second point. Fear not, I know what time it is. A sure kingdom. Therefore, verse 28, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. There's a command. Let us be thankful that we have received, we've been welcomed into a kingdom that cannot be shaken. What's the kingdom? It's the kingdom of Jesus. Those who belong to Jesus, those who have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, with the angels and with the righteous and the firstborn and those who've been made perfect, those who've come to the presence of God through the blood of Jesus, we've been made a part of His kingdom. We're citizens of His kingdom. And you might say, okay, what's that matter? Well, verses 26 and 27 tell us that Jesus is coming back. And when He comes back, He's going to shake the earth. And think about... Um, all the men and women on the gold rushes back in the 1800s that would pan for gold, they would take big scoops of dirt and mud and they would put them in these sifters and they would shake it. And as they shook it, all the junk would fall out and all it would hang on to would be the gold, right? This says that Jesus is coming back and what's going to be in his sifter is everything. And all that's going to survive are the things of his kingdom, the things that he's working to build the things that He has built. And so what this passage is saying is that if we're in Christ, we're a part of the gold. We're a part of that which will stand. We're a part of that which will endure. Let us celebrate our citizenship in the kingdom of Jesus. Now, 
Verse 13 is going to teach us how to live as citizens of that kingdom. So we'll come back to some of the, the tangible, practical next week. But for this week, this says celebrate that you're a citizen of the kingdom of Jesus. So much so that just like I said, other voices have to be subdued to the voice of God. Other allegiances have to be subdued to our allegiance to Jesus. Now look, we're all members of many kingdoms, okay? So if we're in Christ, we're a part of the kingdom of Jesus. Praise His name. If you're a citizen of, of the United States of America or any other country, you're a part of that kingdom. Wherever you might be, there are other allegiances that we have. You might call your school a kingdom. You might call your sports team a kingdom. You might call the team you cheer for a kingdom. You might call that club that you're a part of a kingdom. We have many allegiances. And this passage, I don't think, is saying get rid of them. It's saying put them in their place. Subdue them to the kingdom of Jesus. And let us be clear. The kingdom of Jesus has one king. And his name is Jesus. And no other king takes up that mantle. Now you go watch the news accordingly. We'll talk more about that next week. Third, a call to worship. This passage says, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So if we're grateful, what do we do? And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. The citizens of the kingdom are shaped by perpetual Worship. So here's a few important things for us. Worship means to honor and praise and celebrate and tell of the greatness of God. And we have done Christians a huge misservice, disservice by allowing worship to be put into the box of one hour, one day a week at a building. Romans chapter 12 tells us that worship is the life of a Christian always and everywhere. So we're called to be worshiping citizens always and everywhere. But what we do when we gather is intended to equip and to instruct and to shape how we live always and everywhere. Acceptable. The good news of the gospel of Jesus is that our worship is made acceptable by Christ, by the blood of the new covenant, by the mediator of the new covenant. If we stand in Christ, our worship is acceptable to God. So you don't have to wash off, clean up, get pure, pretend in any way for your worship to be acceptable. You are acceptable if you are in Christ. Friends, this is a huge discipleship point. Huge. You think of your besetting sin right now. You think of it. Okay? If our worship is acceptable in Christ, then you can go to God in the midst of struggle with that sin and be accepted. You don't have to wash off and clean up first if you're approaching Him in Christ. And everything about our methodology of dealing with sin and struggle says we got to put it behind us and make a new resolution and then ask God to help us. 
I would say in the midst of the struggle, cry out to God. And that crying out to God is acceptable worship. It doesn't mean that He will be satisfied in our sin, but it means that we can come to Him at our most wretched because He's already sent His Son to die for that. Now, let us offer to God acceptable worship, that's in Christ, with reverence and awe. And so what this means is that the path of acceptable worship always flows through reverence, which means deep respect, and awe, which means fear and wonder. We don't get to decide what is acceptable worship to God. God's already decided that. It comes through Christ and it goes down the path of reverence and awe. And when I said how we worship, if you thought about types of music, types of musical instruments, types of expression, or what posture is acceptable, I would argue we're missing the point. All of that can be acceptable if it's in Christ and flowing down the path of reverence and awe. Reverence for God and awe in what He has done for us. Fearful wonder. So remember, our worship's never about us. Our worship's never about how awesome we are. Our worship, dare I say, is not even about directly what God has done to us. Our worship is about God and what He does and how He does it and why He does it. Worship flows through reverence and awe. So I want to be really clear. I do not believe that the the church that we are standing in is the only church that gets it right. We probably have it wrong much of the time. I believe there are multiple ways to express faithful worship to God that look very different than me and my very Caucasian, 21st century, educated mindset. But true worship flows through Jesus and down the path of reverence and awe. So let's make sure we get on the right path and then let's be filled with worship because kingdom citizens are shaped by worship here, there, and everywhere, always and forever. Our God has brought us salvation through His Son. He's made us citizens of His kingdom and our posture in His kingdom is worship. Let us seek to shape our living and our discipleship as worshiping citizens of God's kingdom over and above all else. So now our Father and our God, I pray that you would take these words and speak them to your people. Whatever has been said that's good and right and faithful and true, cause it to be heard, cause it to be believed, cause it to bear fruit. May your word endure and work and bear fruit amongst your people.
Father, whatever work needs to be done in our minds and our hearts today, I pray that you would do it now for the cause of Jesus. Congregation, at this time, as we do each week, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. I know at times things like baptism and the Lord's Supper can become just things we do. They're never intended to be that. They're intended to be celebrations. So today, we get to celebrate that Christ died for us. Christ rose again for us. Christ lives and reigns over us, and we're welcome in his kingdom. So here at Redeemer, we invite anybody who's a Christian, anybody who's expressed faith in Jesus for salvation, take this bread, take this cup, and do it with celebrating joy for your place in the kingdom of God. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, we would ask that you let the bread and the cup pass. Not because we want to exclude you from a meal, but because we we don't want you to settle for the signs. We want you to know the Savior. So while we're singing, just, just think about Hebrews 12 and pray, God, would you help me understand what it would look like to walk with Jesus? And I would love to talk with you about that after this service. These guys are going to pass out the bread and the cup. We're going to sing together. I'll come back in just a few minutes and we'll take the elements together.